It's the Loose Filter Podcast, and with you as always are your hosts, Stuart Sims and Anthony Campolo. This week we have an episode that we're calling the Digitization of Music, Platform Wars. The war of the digital music platforms, many of which you will have used and known, some of which you may have used in the past and now no longer exist, and some you may have never heard of at all. So why, why this topic? This is something that's always interested me. Because I lived through the time of kind of the MP3 and how I think it really transformed the the entire music industry because we went from physical media, which would have been tapes or vinyl or CDs, to everything now just being on a device, on a computer, on a phone, streaming through the internet. That's how almost everyone gets their music now. And this change hit me, we were talking about this before we started recording, uh, when I was already a young adult, because I'm a little bit older than you are, and it was so strange for me to such a, see such a tectonic shift in my field as a musician, broadly speaking, happening through the beginning of my uh, you know, work as a professional. Uh, so that's what we're going to dig into for the meat of this episode. It's not going to be a deep dive like last week's episode where we sort of listened to the 20th century uh, through the piano. Uh, it's more of a, a our first-person perspective and a bit of an outline looking back over the last 20 years because they have been so significant and so much has happened so fast that we think it it's a little bit helpful and it might be interesting to, to just kind of step back a little bit and take a look at what's happened to music as a medium and as a commodity yeah, in the last a, 20 years. And get a sense of the, the scale and the, and the shift of how we have so dominated the way that we consume music through these platforms that they have a level of control over the way we now interface with our culture, really. It's really, they have a ton of influence now. Are you saying the medium is the message? It's the entire message. Gucci gang, Gucci gang, Gucci gang, Gucci gang, Gucci gang, Gucci gang, Gucci gang. Gucci gang. Spread their rats on new chain. My bitch love do cocaine. Ooh, I fuck a bitch, I forgot name. I can't buy me no way to rain. Rather go and buy ball man. Gucci gang, Gucci gang, Gucci gang. Gucci gang, Gucci gang, Gucci gang, Gucci gang, Gucci gang, Gucci gang, Gucci gang. Gucci gang. Spread their rats on new chain. My bitch love do cocaine. Ooh, I fuck a bitch, I forgot name. Before we dive in, I want to remind all of our wonderful listeners that you can contact us, give us feedback uh, at uh, loosefilter at gmail.com is the podcast email address. And uh, as always, episodes are posted on our SoundCloud page, soundcloud.com slash loosefilter, or on our own website, loosefilter.com. I also remind everybody that for every episode at the website, loosefilter.com, we post a full playlist for every episode with artists and tracks and links uh, to those so that you can explore them further, acquire them for yourselves if you'd like to. And uh, if there are any other interesting sort of articles or items or whatever that came up in the conversation, we try to link to those as well so that you can follow your curiosity uh, as far as it may lead. So let us hear from you, loosefilter at gmail.com. I hear you really like the new Watsky. <laughs> yeah, I want before we dive into our digitization of music, <gasps> platform wars, uh, I wanted to talk about what might be new and interesting so far in 2019. We're just a couple of weeks in as we record this. 
and uh, I discovered this, there's not, there's not it's, lo and behold, surprise, there's not a lot of uh, new uh, stuff so far. Yeah, I've always known January as the dumping grounds for, at least for movies, maybe not so much for music, but that's where you get all the worst horror films are in January. <laughs> so there are a couple of things I think interesting that have popped up, and the first uh, is Watsky. Uh, an artist, primarily, I guess I'd call him hip-hop, but boy, he's kind of pan-stylistic. He went viral with a video called Pale Kid Raps Fast, and yeah. that's where most people heard about him, and then went down the rabbit hole of discovering, whoa, this guy can actually really write, and he has incredibly produced music as well. He's super talented guy. And that hyperverbal, very rapid style that maybe, I guess, Eminem probably made most popular in the mid-late 90s. Uh, first kind of came to people's sure, attention, yeah. at least not that he was the first, but uh, he does that as well as anyone uh, I've ever heard. But like you mentioned, really thoughtful lyrics and writing really uh, uh, moving to me and interesting. And, and musically, this new album of his complaint is all over the map, but in a good way. It is inclusive stylistically in a way that I think is great. And I just wanted to share clips from a couple of tracks to uh if it's something that maybe strikes your fancy to point you in the direction of an artist that we think maybe deserves uh, a bigger audience this is uh uh watsky's complaint is the album and the first track it's the opening track on the album's welcome to the family and just taking it in cold and listening to it i think it's a great track it's charismatic the 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 chorus sticks really good hook but also varied throughout the song Exactly. And unexpected in ways that he uh, uses autotune to really smear the texture, I think, in really cool ways, like evoking a Bon Iver or... or yeah, Chance the Rapper, or, a lot of those guys yeah, now yeah, yeah, doing that, that kind of Yeah, that sort of uh, uh, hazy, you know, texture. But uh, it's also lyrically such a heartfelt track, and it's about acceptance. And not just acceptance, like uh, in a surface sense, but but really deep acceptance that's required to love another person, because all of us are flawed, all of mm-hmm. us are imperfect. Yeah, learn in to love yourself ways. first for loving someone else. Right, and the radical acceptance it takes, uh, even if you do know, have learned to love yourself, to also love another person. Like they, it's a challenge for all of us, I mm-hmm. think. Um, but he is speaking to someone that, uh, as the you know the person in the song, the perspective of. The song is speaking to someone with whom he's very much in love and saying, uh, I see all of these imperfections and I know that they may or may not ever change. And that's how we all are. And welcome to the family. But the last verse, I just wanted to share uh, a specific example of how pithy he can be as a lyricist. Uh, And it's where this verse ends that really knocks me out. Uh, He says, those fires in your attic that rage without permission, some days invade your living room or break out in the kitchen. They breeze right through the building, they show up as they please, and then retreat like grown-up children. Well, how'd you like to split this, cell and tell me what you've witnessed? If the price of life is hell, well, no one ever had to sell me on how nice a fire smells. Which I think is such a striking way to express that value and that sentiment. Uh, And this is what it sounds like in the context of the track. This is the last verse, and then he continues. There's something else he says in this coda that I think is really good, too. Uh, Again, this is Watsky from the album Complaint. Welcome to the family. 
Those fires in your attic that rage without permission Some days invade your living room or break out in the kitchen They breeze right through the building, they just show up as they please And then retreat like grown-up children Well how'd you like to split this hell and tell me what you've witnessed If the price of life is hell, well no one ever had to sell me on how nice a fire smells Welcome to the family, welcome to the family, welcome to the family and there's so much I've been silent on But I'll whisper every secret to you when this mic is gone And I know you'll listen, and I know it's different But it gives me peace, our missing pieces could be siblings The rough nights ain't leaving So why the hell should we? And I say welcome to the family Welcome to the family Welcome to the family And I wanted to share a clip from another track uh, From this album too, briefly Which I think is, it's hilarious but also rough because uh if you've ever been in a place in a relationship with uh, a person who is like this who treats you this way it's uh no fun and the name of this track is called mean ass drunk and it's uh sort of the singers drawing a line and saying i'm not going to accept this abusive treatment but uh, uh in the opening verse here's the you're gonna hear this lyric in the in the clip and i think it's hilarious you want me to explain it well it's sort of this look in your eye like they're cooking an egg on the hood of your car because you looked at it hard but my heart is the egg and you're watching it fry i'm not gonna cry i'm not gonna lie i am gonna cry (laughs) so this is a little bit from uh mean ass drunk It's really impressive, and I like how he has that kind of self-deprecating, like nerdy guy kind of humor too. Like like Bo Burnham has that same sort of shtick, but he does it in like a hyper literate type way in the same sense. And I love that just the chorus was so unexpected to me. It's like latter day surf punk, you know, like B fifty twos run through you know Ableton Live or something. Yeah, he <laughs> with a he, drum. Machine. He can use such a wide range of sounds because he's not pigeonholed into like oh I need to have. He's like gangster rap kind of beats, or I need everything to be a trap kind of song. Like, thank God he doesn't fall into that pitfall. Uh, the other uh, new release that we wanted to share with you is a pre-release from Weezer's new album, first one in a few years. My mom loves this track. Black, the Black Album, uh, Weezer's Black Album, and uh, they pre-released two tracks, and one of them's called "Can't Knock the Hustle," that we thought was was pretty catchy. Yeah, it's fun. I think I, I, your recommendation, Anthony, was hilariously 
uh, lukewarm, I guess. Like, yeah, I'm like, not going to tell anybody not to listen to it. On the, on the span of popular <laughs> pop songs, it's, it's pretty good. Yeah. All right, so here's a little bit with uh, Taste of What Weezer has coming for us. Can't Knock the Hustle. That's a great jam, and it's uh, really points out to me, puts a focus knob for me on how pan stylistic pop music has become. Yeah, and how Rivers Cuomo can just have his own sound, and then just kind of copy paste all these other things with it. Right, and it, right. it works. We're putting a lot of things with these other things that I didn't think would fit with those things, but they're going pretty well. Yeah, and he always just kind of sounds like himself, even when he sings Africa. <laughs> That is one of the greatest covers, by the way, listeners, if you haven't listened to. And it started as a, it was a joke from one of their fans, right? Uh-huh. He tweeted at them, uh, why don't you do a cover of Africa? And they just did he it. Tried to get, and he did a fan thing. He tried to get fans to whatever, re- I don't remember the exact story, but he tried to get critical mass on social media And then the music video this. is really the best part, because then they got Weird Al. To just deadpan. Mm-hmm. play the lead singer in the band. For it the looks video. almost exactly like him. Some yeah. people wouldn't even notice, I bet. But uh, the joke was from the fans that they wanted Weezer to cover a, a track that was as unlike as their music as they could think of. And so Toto's Africa was what they settled on. And it still came out sounding like a Weezer so, track. So Weezer covered it. It is a faithful cover, mm-hmm. but but sounds like them. So if I think we mentioned this on, on uh, a, a few episodes ago, but it's great if you hadn't heard that cover. Anyway... There's a movie you wanted to talk about. You wanted to lean on the loose of the loose filter and talk yeah, about it. I movie. think, I mean, we watch so much content and we have very strong opinions about the things we watch. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> I don't have opinions. And we both have a very strong positive opinion about the new Spider-Man movie, Into oh, the Spider-Verse. Hell yeah, we do. I really loved it as someone who's been a fan of Spider-Man for such a long time, seen, I think, every movie they've ever had <laughs> in theaters going back to the first Tobey Maguire one, it's a lot like the Lego Batman movie in that it's really a meta commentary on all of the movies, which I really like if it's done well. It's it's kind of fan service but at the same time, because the jokes are so smart, they can get away with it being super fan service Yeah, it's self-aware in a way that I would ascribe to third wave modernism, right? Which I think we've, we've been in for a decade and a half now, right? Mm-hmm. Being original modernism in my little personal... Uh, uh, artistic cultural history here was the first few decades of the 1900s. And then what some people try to characterize as postmodernism, I don't think is what 
that is, I think it's, <laughs> I think it's a very confused term. And I think it's really just second wave modernism because the ethos of my, is make it new, reinvent mm-hmm. a thing, deconstruct a thing, re remake, re whatever. And I think we've been in for a while, a third wave of that, which is, which is wonderful, but a big signifier of that, like you mentioned, is a meta awareness within a narrative piece of art. Because it's a Spider-Man movie about Spider-Man. That's yes. That's essentially what the theme is. <laughs> and and it, it pops up in different ways, and sometimes it can be really annoying and too much like fan service and acknowledging the audience in a way that doesn't enhance the work of art itself, the creative thing itself. Exactly. But in Into the Spider-Verse, I think you're, you're totally right. It is aware of what it is in a way that allows them to play with the boundaries and of the artifice. Of that, yeah, you get a sense right? of that play with them. You, and they're playing the Lego with the movie audience. does that brilliantly mm-hmm. too. Yeah. Uh, and no, uh, one, no surprise at the connection because uh, Lord and Miller were the driving force behind uh, one of the driving forces behind Into the Spider Verse. They're, they're the best thing as well. in Hollywood. <laughs> Phil, Phil Lord, uh, more primarily, uh, as I understand it, one of the best things I'd say, and the the directors too, the the the, the guys who directed it uh, did a ph- phenomenal job. But I would recommend Into the Spider Verse first and foremost to any uh, artists listening or fans or practitioners or students of visual art in any way because i think that as a work of moving digital media visual media it is beautiful and was unexpected to me in some kind of basic ways so like the thing about the movie and if you're not into superheroes or anything at all still uh bear with me for a second because the way that it manifests visually creatively artistically is is amazing the plot of the movie is that there's a villain who wants to rip open uh, dimensions to parallel Earths to get back a version of his wife and son who have died, to take them from a parallel Earth uh, version of his wife and son that are a lot like the ones he lost so that he can have them back. But Spider-Man tries to stop it, gets caught in the middle of this device, and when it rips open the dimensions, it pulls in different versions of Spider-Man instead of the intended uh, targets. And so you get uh, half a dozen versions, iterations from different dimensions, different realities, alternate realities of Spider-Man. Okay. So that's the whole plot device. Uh, but visually they animate each of the Spider-Mans with a different technique. So that when you're looking at them on screen, visually they're completely mismatched. One's hand cell animation, one's like pencil black and white shading, one's 3D computer animation, one's rotoscoped, one's uh, anime. Yeah, so it I, gets a commentary on the different types of animation that have developed over the years and how you can then now blend them all together. It's like remix culture, which we talk about a lot. Exactly, and it visually, in terms of the narrative, makes it really obvious that most of these people don't belong in the reality of the primary character because they just look weird. They don't look like everything else around them because they're rendered differently. Which is an interesting commentary on how now with the internet, we all have instant access to all eras of art. So it's like a constant now where you can go and read a comic book from the 30s. You can just find that online. That's been scanned, you know? So we're engaging with all these different eras of Spider-Man already. And so these movies, they, they make sense to us because they're capturing that sort of zeitgeist of all of these different elements of creative works being smashed together in real time all at once. The eternal present, uh, yes, as, exactly. it, as it were. 
Another thing that knocked me out was how they incorporated some of the storytelling techniques that are native to comic books as a medium that are difficult to translate to another medium. Because as a comic book kid myself, yeah, growing and I didn't up in read the 70s comic and books, 80s. So this is usually stuff I miss. Yeah. There, there, there are, like any medium, there are unique reasons and to tell a story in a particular medium, if telling a story is the thing you're doing as a uh, creative uh, artist. And there are specific ways that a medium allows you to tell a story because of what the medium can do, right? Mm-hmm. Medium is the message. Exactly. Oh, hey, it's like, yeah. Oh, wow. It's like we planned that. But uh, with comic books in that that paneled sort of graphic novel storytelling style, you can use, uh, there are different devices that are used like uh, uh, with, with coloring to indicate flashbacks or the way that sounds are indicated and motion is indicated can be used to skip beats in a story or elide things and give information in a really quick way. Or you can like have a page that, all nine are a single panel to like add emphasis. Exactly. And they translated that to moving visual media in into the Spider-Verse in a way that I think I've seen attempted in other movies, but not nearly as successfully as they were able to do it. I remember in Ang Lee's uh, Hulk movie, the first live action Hulk movie that was not well received, but that I appreciated for how he really tried to bring a comic book storytelling style to the visual medium of movies. Mm-hmm. Uh, what about him, um, like Sin City? Uh, I think Sin City is one where uh, Robert Rodriguez worked, collaborated yeah, with Frank Miller to try to do from that. The source images. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, I think also that uh, Watchmen. Uh, Zack Snyder tried to do, tried to do it uh, in different ways mm-hmm. in Watchmen, especially. But this is the first time I've seen it really work and really advance the technique itself when they used it. And so. that's partly, I think, because the digital tools now they they spent, I think, a year creating just the type of animation they needed to to create to make the movie. So it's getting to the point now where the tools are becoming so sophisticated, we can now find ways to to bridge that gap i think good movie even if you're not a comic fan kids love it but it, there is so much there for a thoughtful adult to take in and that these are just the headline things that we do a whole episode probably on this movie and how much we we dug it but uh last thing in our intro section i just wanted to remind everybody we mentioned this a few episodes ago uh, and then when we passed the new year, it was one of our December episodes, we passed the new year, a bunch of articles hit about it, reminding everyone now that all of the copyrighted works from 1923 have now entered the public domain. Great change in copyright law for the first time in 20 years, we get stuff entering the public domain. Uh, and I'm excited about 1924 because Rhapsody in Blue was written in 1924. Uh, so next year in 2020, we'll hit get works from... 1924.
the story of the digitization of music was enabled by the MP3. The MP3 took many, many years to be created and was pretty much just one guy who was really determined and thought that it was a good idea. And eventually we ended up getting it. It was a German man whose name was Karlhein Brandenburg. He's now known as the father of the MP3. In 1987, he was at a research center that started working on a high-quality, low-bit audio encoding. And that's what makes that technology specifically special, Mm -hmm. is that it is the mechanism that takes uh, a signal, an electronic signal, recorded music. An analog signal. An Mm -hmm. analog, a physical signal, an an electricity, electrons, Mm -hmm. and converts it into information. Converts it into ones and zeros, bits, bytes, something that a computer can understand. Now, uh, Dave Gant and I did an episode uh, a couple years ago that's still up on the site about that process. We broke down the Mm -hmm. process of that. So uh, we'll link to that in the post on this episode if you want more detail on it. But that is the, the crux, the tool, the change that enabled all the cultural things that we're going to talk about in the next uh, 20 or 30 minutes uh, made it possible, right? Exactly. And what's incredible is the it MP3, started, that yeah, encoding mm-hmm. protocol. Yeah, it started in 1987, and then it took six years for there to be the MPEG-1 standard, which was an industry-wide standard that then everyone could use so it would actually be usable. And then it took another six years before a record label even actually used it. Because it was stuck in a chicken or the egg problem where no one had an MP3 player, either software or a physical device, so no one had a reason to create an MP3 for someone to listen to. And this is through the 90s kind of post, as we were getting into the post-compact disc world of the music consumer market, there were all these proprietary technologies, right? Mm -hmm. Sony had its mini discs and then it had its memory sticks. And then, you know, and so not just different file formats, but different proprietary kind of hardware and stuff like that. Um, But what is culturally significant is that by figuring out a means that eventually became widely adopted, music was decommodified in a real literal sense. It was, it's no longer a thing. Yeah, it's a series of instructions. It's now. information. It's <laughs> yeah. information, right? Mm-hmm. And so I don't have to buy a piece of plastic, a compact disc, an album, a cassette tape, or whatever that the the signal you know is encoded onto because it's not signal anymore. It's information, and that can be transmitted through the pipelines that we transmit all our information through the internet. Which leads to a very interesting, almost philosophical, ethical argument: Is it then ethical to create? copies and distribute them for free as was done with napster so this brings us now to 1999 or we should say we ran headlong into it without considering uh-huh. the ethical argument at all yeah just because we mm-hmm. we could do it napster hits in 99 yeah 99 so this is where the chicken or the egg problem someone finally forced the issue and created a mechanism that allowed people to share their mp3s with each other over the internet so this sidesteps... And that's the real genie out of the bottle moment, uh-huh. right? Yeah, exactly. Because it sidesteps the labels entirely. It sidesteps any, any, any of the gatekeepers. Distribution, any retailing, mm-hmm. any physical production, any, any of it. If you've got the information, and not only can I get it directly from me to you, I still have the original, like you mentioned. That's the ethical quandary, right? Because you're not 
taking the thing, you're you're making a copy of it, and the original is intact because it's just information. Exactly. Right. Mm-hmm. So now my one copy of it, I can replicate it a billion times because now there's Napster and our computers can connect to each other directly. Boy, that's certainly threatening to an industry, isn't it? It's very threatening, and it makes sense. Like your product was it was taken away from you. Mm-hmm. So it makes sense why they they kind of freaked out and and went nuclear. It's really easy now in hindsight to look at the music industry and and laugh at how naive they were to to not see what was coming with the MP3. But there the sales that they were getting from CDs were were through the roof. It was way beyond what they made before CDs. So it was the worst possible time for them to hit this existential threat. And that's a really great point because of the conversion, the mass conversion in the late 80s to CDs and all the remastered recordings and stuff. Record labels were not only doing their normal business, they were selling back catalogs that they like they'd never sold them before. So they were selling everything over again. So they were fat and lazy also. And didn't or wouldn't see this paradigm shift. This was hitting right as I started as a professor myself in my uh, uh, early in my professional career. And as an outsider looking in, I remember thinking, is this just like hubris or dumbness or willful ignorance that this multi-billion dollar industry doesn't understand that the very nature of what they do has shifted whether they like it or not? And didn't realize that you can't litigate a, a technology paradigm that's overtaken you. And so the story, the outline that you're presenting here that we're talking about is one that starts grassroots. It's a guerrilla action, right? It comes mm-hmm. from decentralized people doing stuff, right? Mm-hmm. Napster comes out of somebody's house and it, it just is, you can get it out into the world that way. And so that's what was fascinating to me that these destabilizing uh, tools and technologies came from... Uh, from all of us it came from everywhere right yeah and that's why the the disruptive innovation uh maxim that became so well known in silicon valley it it really did bear a lot of fruit and this is a good example because with napster it did essentially get shut down it only lasted two years from june 99 to july 2001 but it being shut down didn't matter because it had already opened up all of these people to even expect that you could do this, that you could download these and and peer-to-peer share. So the very next year, we get LimeWire, which was the first one I actually used when I was a kid. I never used Napster, but LimeWire throughout the 2000s, I think is what a lot of people use because it didn't get shut down for a very long time. It didn't get shut down until 2010. And the interesting thing to me was, as a young adult, it was a lot of this was the outside looking in because... As a working musician by that point, I did consider the ethical implications and so actually never file shared or pirated. You would have felt bad. (laughs) Yes, I actually. And uh, when it got frustrating was when you got into the late aughts and the early teens, and it's still frustrating to a degree now, but less so, when you wanted to get something and have it and use it and you wanted to give the people who made it money, but it got difficult to do that. Mm-hmm. Like the the years of transition, this all uh, precipitates uh, and change and transition is we're still sorting it out. And that was when it got frustrating was when I want to give you my money. Why won't you give me the thing? Why is it hard to get this thing that I want there? And, and, and to a degree, we're still in that yeah. period of time. And but so, yeah, so I was an outsider on a lot of this mm-hmm. hearing about the kids using the LimeWire. Yeah, LimeWire, it was very similar to Napster, very similar to also Kazaa would have been another big one that people were using. 
just a simple way to share files with each other. And it was terrible. I ended up with like 20 tracks that were labeled Weird Al and were these like weird knockoff other people doing doing their own parodies. So the the experience was was awful, absolutely. But at the same time, it was this Wild West. It was this sense of I can get anything from anybody anywhere at any time. And it's truly a paradigm shift because it moved your imagination. This is how this works. I have music here on my computer and I can open it up to the world and look at everybody else's music that they have on their computer. And it's like this never ending orchard of fruit, you know, that you can just Mm -hmm. pick and pick. And and if you go searching hard enough, you can find almost anything. Exactly. And so then because the, our imaginations changed, the appetite became for better versions of that, more refined versions of that. Mm -hmm. And so what's then, what's the next big iteration? So we get two divergences here right in the beginning of the 2000s that I think represent two interesting shifts. There's one, the, the iPod, which is the enabling technology that really allowed a lot of this to happen is the iPod gave everyone a reason to actually have an MP3 player. And that's late 2001. Is so when yes, that would be 2001. And that was all of a sudden now, all these people who downloaded all this music now could put it on their iPod. So it was built kind of on the backs of piracy, but at the same time, letting the industry know, hey, people want this. People actually want MP3s. And if we give them that opportunity... Steve Jobs saw that he could kind of force this issue. I experienced that profound shift among musicians because by mid-2002, there were a lot of conversations going on like, hey, have you gotten one? And now we should be clear, the iPod's not the first MP3 player. And everything we're mentioning is not necessarily, some of them are, but not all of them, the very first. But they're the ones that broke through. Yeah, that, and we're going to give you some numbers after this yeah. to show you why. <clears throat> that 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 where the change was made manifest, and sometimes that's not always the very first. So they were MP3 players, but this was the one that uh, everybody suddenly got the idea of a digital music player and what it meant. And part of that's Apple putting it in a slick, sexy product and having a great ad campaign. Knowing how to market and tell people, hey, you can have your whole music collection in your pocket. For us to pay attention to it mm-hmm. and see that that thing was there. Uh, but I other my conducting teacher from my master's degree was like, hey, have you seen this thing called an iPod? It's amazing. I listen to my all my music and it's with me when I travel and everything. So for musicians, suddenly we had the whole world in our pocket. You know, our whole reference library was always just right there. You can only imagine, you know, the the knock on effects. And that's two thousand one. The other interesting paradigm that was created at the same time in the year two thousand we have Pandora. And Pandora has almost been forgotten in the story of the streaming platforms, but shouldn't be because it came first and has achieved an incredible amount of success. Today, it was just purchased for $3.5 billion by Sirius. So it's become now the dominant internet radio platform. Over 70% of internet radio listening is through Pandora now. Wow, I didn't realize they'd become that big of a platform. I remember when Pandora was nascent because they were the, the, the first movers, at least the first ones I noticed to try to develop, uh, methods for software or algorithms, whatever to sort and find music, right? Like, exactly. Mm -hmm. Let me do a playlist by artist or style or whatever. Something that's very common in core to the way that Spotify, Apple music, Pandora obviously works. Mm -hmm. But it was a brand new idea when they started it. It was how I think they got their first round of capital. But I remember they put together a team of several dozen like academics, like bona fide musicologists, ethnomusicologists, 
who did the hard work research and development they did R and D. Yeah, like listening to a style and saying what makes classic blues classic blues. Well, it's these six things, mm-hmm. and any track that has these six qualities could be something that someone who likes classic blues finds appealing. Mm-hmm. And they called it, I remember, this is all out of my head, uh, so I hope I'm remembering it correctly, the Music Genome Project. Yeah, no, that's, that's how correct. they build mm-hmm. it for a couple of years. And I knew one of the guys that got hired. It was a, a guy I knew from grad school. And it was really fascinating because they built it on really solid bedrock mm-hmm. uh, by hiring academics to actually say, this is what styles are and what, you know, the actual components and how we would classify because they were annotating the data so that the algorithms could know what to do with it this is what we would call a a supervised learning problem in machine learning once you have a bunch of data and you get the actual experts to label it correctly then the algorithms can figure out how to recommend it to people how to how to group it into clusters by style and that's what they saw they saw that because music had been turned into information you could then do things with it that you could do with computer science like we were doing with all of our old documents and Excel spreadsheets, and it becomes a data science project. give you a sense of what the iPod became by 2014 390 million units had been sold and these things were a couple hundred dollars they they were not cheap little trinkets for scale there are about 325 million people in the US mhm so that's really incredible and that's what allowed Steve Jobs to have so much leverage in how he negotiated with the music industry in 2003 he started the iTunes store. And this was different from Pandora because you weren't given uh, a, like radio access. It was more like you pay a dollar to own this song, which I think wasn't the right, the right paradigm and, and why it never stuck because people wanted to either pay for all of it, like at the same time with Spotify, or to just have a service that they can listen to anytime because yeah, I, you could, you never felt like you owned something digitally. In, initially, it was a direct mapping of the real world physical experience. I go to a record store and an album is a thing, whether yeah. it's mm-hmm. on an LP or a cassette or a CD or whatever. It's a physical thing that I look at, I buy, I take it home, I put it in a player and I listen to it. But in practice, what it meant is you got a digital file that you could do less with than if you had downloaded it or just got it yourself because they put all the DRM on it, so they, they broke the yeah. experience. And it made a lot less sense to have to shop and purchase once people started kind of listening to a track at a time and, and making playlists and thinking in those terms, too, because it's too much work to find it all. Mm-hmm. And so I, I initially, that's what I think customers wanted because that's what we knew. But but when the streaming services, when Pandora got more listeners, when Spotify came on the scene and people realized they could just put in a channel and the algorithms will do a lot of the work for them, mm-hmm. especially because once music was information, well, now all of music is available to us if it's been 
convert it to information and put online. So the availability is just crazy. It's like the biggest music store you've ever been in. And once you have people listening to it, you then get data on their listening habits. Like when they skip songs, when they're they're engaged for long periods of time, it becomes a a virtuous cycle of getting more data by having the listener data. So it took a few years over the last two decades. The pattern that I think is already kind of evident by we're mid-aughts here Mm -hmm. uh, is that the the tools, the technological changes happen, and then there's a period of kind of confusion and, you know, until we it sort of sorts out the new ways this needs to work. Exactly. And now in the mid-2000s, we get an interesting group of, Three different platforms that I think are all still very important now and are a little bit different. We have YouTube in 2005, Spotify in 2006, and then SoundCloud in 2007. So I think these three make an interesting case study. First of all, just... Well, YouTube jumps out at me, but what's, mm-hmm. yeah, I, yeah, what's distinct about each of them? Yeah, so YouTube, first off, just to give you a sense of its scale, it is now the second most popular site in the entire world of, of the internet. What's the most popular, Google? Yeah, mm-hmm. Google. <laughs> so, and YouTube has only been with us for 14 years, not even, for 13 and a half years. Almost so 2005 years. it was created, and then 2006 Google bought it for $1.65 billion, which was the best deal ever. <laughs> and at the time, I distinctly remember so many people writing, all the professionals who were supposed to know, yeah, say, how they so pay dumb. so much money for this video hosting site. Yeah, people it's just put videos of their cats think. online. You, I don't you, even know what word are we imitating. Is this like our dumb person voice? This is how dumb people sound. Uh, the, but well, these, yeah. These people wrote like, a lot. They're still, you can read people in the 90s who said the internet, you'd never buy something on yeah, the internet. This is true. <laughs> this is true. But this is right. The the Even when the tools are there, they exist, they've been implemented it is hard for people to frame shift. Mm-hmm. It's hard for people to get conceptually how the culture, the behavior. This is just going to be the way changing. people are going to do it because now. these are the tools. Mm-hmm. These are the medium is the message. Yep. Man, that's what we should call this episode. <laughs> so you have YouTube, which uh, four hundred hours of content are uploaded every minute. So that's essentially taken over the world. It's I think the most important communication. Medium that that's ever been invented, really. <laughs> YouTube specifically, yes, uh huh. Within the internet is the focus within point the internet, of the internet. Be- because of how it enables video and music and any sort of any sort of content you want. It's really become, I think, a, a focal point for a lot of things. And then, and then we have Spotify and SoundCloud. So these two I think of being differently because Spotify was aimed at capturing what the labels already had. It wanted to have a database that was all of recorded music as best as it could get it, where SoundCloud wanted to create a platform that people could upload their music and their products to. So it was creator-focused more so than Spotify because of what it was kind of optimizing its service for. How was Spotify distinct from Pandora? That in such that it's eclipsed it in visibility that people forget Pandora is the first mover, first big mover in the space. Because Spotify was more about providing uh, like a channel, <laughs> like a radio station, where Spotify, you could have a lot more access to just having an album, being able to listen to whatever tracks you want, and then use those tracks to create playlists and, and do all that. So it was the idea of what we think of now with uh, like a Netflix, where there's just a constant 
database of content that you can access at any time and you pay a subscription to have access to that database of content. And through a lot of these changes, the conversation among musicians was, we see the benefits. We see access to listeners and an ability to create a professional finished product at a much lower cost production wise. But how do we get paid? But how do we get paid? Well, Mm -hmm. even before stepping back from, how do you find an audience? Mm -hmm. Like how how do you, I mean, YouTube a billion Hours of content every day? Is that what your notes said? Did I read that right? Yeah, it was four four hundred million. Yeah, four yeah, uh, four hundred. One billion hours. hours of content are watched every day on YouTube. Mm-hmm. Like how do you even as a musician find your audience? Uh and then how do you make money? How do you how do you monetize it? And that's where SoundCloud is is significant and indifferent because it's it is a catch-all portal like YouTube or Spotify, but like you said, it's creator-focused. Mm-hmm. Its aim is to be the place that musicians can put their things. I mean, it's where we put our podcast about music. It's our primary platform, too. Mm-hmm. So as a creator-based platform, I think it is an important component and a solution to the problems, the practical problems that these cultural changes have created, like not least of which are artists' ability to earn a you know reliable living. Yeah, at this point, the best thing these platforms can do is to try and take themselves out of the picture as much as possible and just enable the creators. This is actually Bill Gates, the way he defines what something is, quote unquote, a platform. And and what I'm going off of is a platform is something that enables a greater level of economic activity than the platform itself generates. Does that make sense? So that the people who are on the platform say all the YouTube people would be making money directly from their viewers that would supersede the amount of money that YouTube itself generates. And that keeps it from being upside down where the middleman, mm-hmm. like that's how not to uh, be political on our podcast, but with healthcare in the US, we're upside down because the middle that doesn't add value is taking so much of the revenue. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's rent seeking. Yeah. <laughs> and and so, yeah, as, as long as the, as the, the creators are foregrounded, uh, economically, because that makes it sustainable. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is, uh, for context too, SoundCloud 2007, so we're sort of hitting a point of maturity. Of the, These platforms are kind of now all out operating by the late aughts. Yeah, and they're hitting an equilibrium right now. And something uh, important piece of hardware hits in 07, the iPhone. The iPhone, mm-hmm. Which, similar tectonic impact, but I think, the you know, second level and much bigger than the, as the iPod. With this, every single person, regardless of if you had a computer or an MP3 player, now has access to these services. And that really is a huge frame shift. And if we look at the numbers, Spotify has 200 million users and SoundCloud has 40 million registered users. And these are numbers from a couple of years ago, so they're probably even larger. But that's such a massive scale of, of people that now have these direct access to all sorts of content in, in a way that was never possible before, that you had to you know, scour a lime wire mm-hmm. to, to find all that music. And then the iPhone was the device that got everybody to get it in their pocket for real. Multimedia, mm-hmm. totally. All the, all the tools, the total Swiss Army knife.
last couple of things I want to talk about was one example, which most people probably won't know about because they're not uh, very cognizant of Chinese tech companies. But there's a company called ByteDance that is a combination of Musical.ly and TikTok. And there, you know, been a couple different brands that have been merged into this. But right now it has 800 million daily active users. So that's compared to we were looking at 40 million for SoundCloud, 200 million for Spotify. This is 800 million. And that's ByteDance, B-Y-T-E. Yeah. ByteDance, which you may have never even heard of. Chinese language, uh, what, like Mandarin language-based platform? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's currently valued at $78 billion. That's so, it's hilarious to me, Americans especially, we forget about, like, don't forget about the other hemisphere of the globe. I mean, between China and India, that's a third of all human beings. And in the last today. 20 years, there's a middle class of Chinese people, almost the size of America itself, that, that has risen up. That's now, you know, subscribing to these platforms and creating their own content. So you, you really can't ignore this. This is going to become a huge dominant thing in our culture very soon, I think. Our final one is a look at a series of misplaced misaligned incentives in the music industry. This is the story of Tidal and how the musicians tried to take back control and it didn't come out looking and, good for well, them. I, to, to keep our the thread of our narrative as we go, so, so okay, so we've hit on the high points of the technologies and tools themselves and in this, I mean, this was all within a decade. That's, mm-hmm. the, that's really significant. It's, it, it has happened so fast that even for those of us who are sitting here right now living through it talking about it it's like well i'm not even sure our heads are still spinning but as you get into the early aughts you start really living we start really living into the ramifications of these changes and one of the big problems that still through the second decade of the century is that we haven't yet quite figured out how to make these models work for creators in terms of revenue, sustainable income, sources of making a living. Mm -hmm. So that, you know, I mean, if you're going to make interesting, good, creative work, that's a full-time job. Whatever kind you're making, if it's going to be good, it's going to take 40 plus hours a week to make anything that I think really is any good. Uh, uh, And so we start seeing with with the couple you're going to mention along our narrative thread, their responses to trying now to correct the 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 way the marketplace and the culture the behaviors changed around the tools yeah because everyone notices that the shift has happened but no one quite knows how, how to rectify it because everyone got so comfortable having access to all music and barely paying anything for it. it it was just sort of a cultural shift that we all collectively made but then didn't decide to figure out a way to actually compensate the musicians at the same time so it, it ended up in the situation where you had a team of major label musicians. You had uh, Jay-Z, Beyonce, uh, Arcade Fire was involved in this, uh, a handful of others who tried to create their own streaming platform, which was Tidal. The problem was is that the way it was rolled out made people see it in a cynical light as, oh, here's these musicians who are already super rich trying to get a piece of the pie. Similarly, actually, to how... Metallica was viewed when they tried to sue Napster. They were just seen as, you know, these rich, out-of-touch people. Instead of viewing it as, no, these are musicians trying to get paid for, for money, it was put and through this lens. And also musicians who are leveraging their power and uh, audience within the industry mm-hmm. to create 
new models and systemic changes for all artists mm-hmm. too. Yeah. You know, it's not just protecting their own work and and so on. It's it's a, a recognition that hey, I I can change this for for everybody, so we don't all get the short end of the stick. Yeah. So I I found it to be really interesting as it played out. I felt like it wasn't actually portrayed super accurately by by the media just because they sort of what certain articles just kind of you know media portrayed something inaccurately i know right and then it got doubled on it got doubled on because then we ended up finding out that they were distorting their their count number for like listeners so that changes the payouts for artists so not only did they have a bad start but then they got caught actually fudging the numbers as well and so they had no sympathy at that point so good intent addressing the right problems but not well implemented or managed exactly and the whole situation ended up becoming a a huge issue and it got sold to sprint the sprint corporation they they purchased a third of it for 200 million dollars which to put in perspective we were just looking at 80 billion for for bite dance so the amount of money that would have been put into even creating this platform would have been Hundreds of millions of so dollars. So where does this leave us looking uh, on the precipice of, of moving into the third decade of this century? Uh, where, where, where does that leave us? We have Spotify, YouTube, and Pandora in America. Apple Music. And, and Apple Music, correct. Yeah, Apple Music's up there as well. So those so are the four Largely people's behaviors have moved to subscription services. Exactly. Not just for music. Though. Yeah, for music, for Netflix, for, for, for video content, everything, for Hulu, for everything. Yeah. Mm-hmm. the behavior and the expectation is really becoming, I want to pay X amount monthly for this thing. And let's say it's music, and I want access to all of it. And I want to pay mm-hmm. this much for movies and TV, and I want access to... But So the subscription model seems to be where our behaviors and our imaginations have landed. And in the music industry itself, it was in 2014, right around where we're leaving off, that digital streaming revenue kicked over and became more than 50% of all revenue. Because it's a mix of all different sorts of things now, but it was around 2014 when the actual shift happened. That was when every executive, they, could not, they couldn't ignore it. It was there right in the numbers. This right, is now, right. the industry is now a streaming industry. And while it is getting better somewhat, for creatives, for the content generators. There was the the law that was written recently that we talked about, so the Music yeah. Modernization Act. We'll see how that plays out once it's, it's implemented. It's still not a solved problem, yeah, exactly. especially mm-hmm. for musicians. We there is, there is a significant... Where the industry expects you to present more or less a finished product with an audience in place, where I think that expectation doesn't exist in other creative media, in, in, in publishing, in movies and TV and so forth. Uh, and so that there, there still is a particular subset of practical problems, I think, for us to work out. Uh, to me, the uh, positive signs... Move into our next decade. Uh, the positive signs come from artists like Chance the Rapper, who don't have labels. I think that's really fascinating. He's, he's won Grammys they with, find an without audience even having a label. And, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. But then, how, yeah, how do you find that audience? Boy, I guess, but that's always been the problem for any artist. How do I find my audience? How do I get people to pay attention to this cool thing that I think is worth paying attention to that I made? Oh, uh, I still maintain that despite all of the uh, uh, how turbulent it's been and how difficult it's been, this is a golden age for anyone who does creative work. Oh, yeah. I'm, I'm a full believer in 
the the benefits over over the drawbacks from this type of technology since i grew up through kind of the the limewire itunes ipod era for me it was it was foundational in terms of thinking about how to structure playlists how to think about songs uh different eras putting them together in terms of just having that whole database of historical music to draw off of was incredibly educational and so really helped the, me understand the history of music. The way the technologies and tools worked really shaped your imagination and informed the content of your uh, uh, imaginative well, so to speak. For me, it, it the, really The achieved, medium kind of was the message. It achieved what, what Steve Jobs <laughs> wanted to, which was making it a bicycle for the mind, you know, just yeah. making it a pure, a, a tool that wouldn't get in the way, you know? That's all we have for this week. Thanks for listening. Next week, uh, I think our episode we're looking at is contemporary protest music. Yeah. We look at what uh, what artists are telling us about the world. Sticking it to the man. Right now. <laughs> uh, uh, of course, as always, we're online at loosefilter.com and soundcloud.com slash loosefilter. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.